0: Welcome to the Zeitgeist 19 curated podcast, exploring the spirit of now through the lens of art and sustainability. Your hosts are Farah Pirie and Elizabeth Zhivkova. In this episode, we meet American researcher and academic Sarah Nami, who speaks about one of the long-lasting side effects of COVID-19, food insecurity. A former White House Fellow and a senior policy advisor to the U.S. Department of Agriculture and Michelle Obama's Let's Move initiative, Sarah discusses major issues of the food supply chain and a potential future recovery of the system, built through new adequate policies helping the ones who need the most. Hi Sarah and thank you for being here with us today. As a professor of public health policy in Harvard, what is your opinion on the ongoing global situation? And uh, where do you see a room for improvement?
1: Thanks so much for having me. So from where I sit, um, food insecurity or hunger, um, which is lack of reliable access to nutritious food has become an enormous issue globally. And where I know it best is in the United States. So prior to the pandemic, about 2 billion people Lacked regular, um, safe access to nutritious food. And that number has only gone up as a result of um, COVID 19. We've seen massive unemployment. We've seen um, school closures, which have meant that children that often get food at school, that's not happening. And um, in the United States context, moving into the pandemic, food insecurity, or you can think of that as hunger, affected about one out of 10 Americans. And now that number has more than doubled, and it's even higher among households with children and it's higher among black and brown populations. And what we know from um, past economic recessions is that the recovery time takes much longer um, for low income and minority populations. There's a lot of concern about how do we create policies and put them in place both in the United States but around the world to help those who need it most because for so many people they simply lack enough money to feed themselves right now and then That certainly doesn't even account for the fact that ideally we want people to fill their fridges with calories, but also do so with nutritious calories. And for many people, that is simply not a possibility. Thank you so much, Sarah. Um, Unfortunately, this whole conversation on COVID-19 is still very relevant. So I'm going to ask you about uh, a recently published article uh, of yours, where you state that food insecurity could be a long lasting side effect of COVID-19. Can you please expand on that? So we know for example that for adults and kids if they're food insecure it can have impacts on their physical health, on their mental health, and in children it can lead to behavioral problems. That could be things like they're not very well in school or they have developmental problems. And it can often be the case that children who have insufficient food when they're young they can have then more health care costs later in life, and they can even have more disadvantages when they go on to the job market. And so as we think about the generation of children who are being affected right now by COVID-19, it's not just that they're hungry, which obviously is not a good thing. It's not just that the, that, that hunger is gonna hurt their health. It's also possible that, that hunger can hurt their economic prospects. And it's very similar for adults in that Um, Food insecurity is linked to a lot of negative health outcomes, also linked to negative mental health outcomes. There's lots of anxiety right now because people don't have reliable food sources. And it's just becoming worse and worse. And in the context of the US, one thing that's been particularly challenging is we're still waiting on the next stimulus bill. And the funds that have been been received since the last ones, which passed um, back in the spring, have run out. And so many families are hurting right now. And this obviously is not a US problem. Um, Globally, there's a lot of concern about how do we feed families right now who either can't go to work because of lockdowns, whose children can't go to school because of lockdowns, or who simply lack enough money to go shopping.
0: Thank you, Sarah, for this insightful answer. Let's speak a bit more about the rising poverty and inequality around the world. In these strength times, how do you envision that we can reach the United Nations' objective of ending hunger by 2030?
1: Yeah, so one of the um, United Nations Millennium Sustainable Development Goals is ending um, child malnutrition by 2030. And there, you know, we were somewhat on track to hit that prior to COVID-19 happening. Probably not to hit it entirely, but to sort of at least come within striking distance of it. I think the likelihood of that happening now is very, very slim. And there's, an ex- there's expected to be a big rise in childhood malnutrition, both with respect to stunting and with respect to wasting. And it's even expected that um, as a result of COVID-19, wasting could get to its highest level um, in history. And I think the thing to underline is that issues around malnutrition, issues around hunger in general, are preventable. We have enough food to feed the world. Where this turns, is issues in the supply chain of getting food to people that need it, of shoring up economies in ways that it's not just people at the highest income that can get access to food. Um, But this is a totally preventable problem. And what we really need is the political will to really get food into the hands of children and families who need it so that we can work towards the um, sustainable development goals, so that we can address in real time these issues around food insecurity that are, frankly, plaguing the world right now.
0: Sarah, I would like to talk about Michelle Obama's Let's Move initiative and uh, what did it mean to you? How are you reflecting on the conversation right now?
1: Yeah, thanks for that question. So um, currently I'm on faculty at the Harvard School of Public Health. And before coming here, I was a White House fellow in the Obama administration. And um, in that role, I both worked as a senior policy advisor to... um, Undersecretary of Food, Nutrition, and Consumer Services. And the purpose of that job was to sort of oversee a suite of about 15 nutrition assistance programs with, which had a price tag of about $100 billion. And then I also served as the USDA representative to the Let's Move campaign, which was run by First Lady Michelle Obama um, house. And as I reflect on that program and why it was significant, its charge was to re- was to reduce childhood obesity in a generation. And while we cannot say that as a result of Let's Move childhood obesity has gone away, what we can say is that that program really served as a lightning rod to bring together lots of people working on this issue from all around the country to combine resources, to think about shared goals, to identify areas where progress was needed. And it it catalyzed a lot of creativity and a lot of excitement. And so I certainly am happy to have been a part of it and view it as very much a work in progress. What we're seeing is that childhood obesity is continuing to go up, and it is something that is very predictable. So if you just look in the U.S. and you forecast out for today's two-year-olds the expectation of how many of them will have obesity, the expectation is that today's two-year-olds, 59% of them will have obesity by the time they're 35. And um, of today's two-year-olds, if you look at it by race, ethnicity, it's about two-thirds of black and brown kids. So we have work to do when it comes to addressing the problem of obesity because we project that it's going to become more of a problem in the US. And the same holds true for many other parts of the world. I think that what led do was to really invigorate the community that's working on this and gather the act of one in the same direction and harmonize activities. And at this moment in time, we could use more of that, both around the issues of obesity and around food insecurity because they much run together. So where you see food insecurity, you often see obesity because these are issues that tend to concentrate among lower income and minority populations. My last question for you, Sarah, is a little bit off
0: topic, um, but I'm really curious to know your opinion. Uh, With the new elected government, the U.S. is entering a new era. What are your hopes for the
1: country and its recovery? Yeah, so I have hopes for the country. I think that there's a lot of possibilities. So one of the things that's happened, and this, I think, sort of gets the first question, which I didn't totally answer around policy change, is there's been a huge amount of policy change in the last eight months. I'm thinking specifically now about the US context to address this rising food insecurity. And a number of those changes have really modernized the programs and directly met the need right now. So let me be more specific. Um, Moving into the pandemic, we we have a program in the United States called the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program. Many people know it as food stamps, but essentially it is a program that helps about um, 36 million Americans afford food each month. That number has since gone up to about 43 million Americans. But take-home point is that it helps tens of millions of Americans afford food each month. The average monthly benefit is about $100 per person per month. So it's not enough to totally feed someone, but it is supplemental and meant to provide assistance. And prior to the pandemic, those fits, which were issued on what you can think of as like a debit card, could not be used online. And only, but only states authorized this of the 50 states. And so now, roughly eight months later, 47 states and the District of Columbia allow you to use your SNAP benefits online, which has implications for access to healthy food as implications for social distancing. And so that's just one example of how do you modernize these programs? Some other important changes include now it's the case that in roughly 100,000 schools around the country, meaning the United States, school meals are now free to all children prior to the pandemic. They were only available um, for children who qualified based on their income. But now we have universal free meals. Now the nutrition standards have been relaxed and so that raises questions about, is the food healthy enough? But the important thing is that, at least for the next school year, all children have access to food. And so a question is, well, should that remain or should it just be something that's temporary? Another thing that got stood up is that, um, even though we've provided universal meals, many, many children are not accessing them. nine-week period in the spring about meals were missed by children. And so what the government has provided also on a sort of debit card is the money that parents whose children would otherwise have received meals at school that were free or reduced price has provided those benefits to parents in in a debit card. And it's called Pandemic EBT. And that's about $114 per child per month. And that's been extended throughout this entire year. And so what's a lot of the questions that this raises is with all these different changes, A, does it make it easier the next time we're in a pandemic, which is sort of inevitable that these things ebb and flow, and then B, there have been thousands of waivers to federal programs, like for example, the ability to pick up multiple meals at a time, or um, things that make it easier to enroll in programs like SNAP. To what extent should those become permanent parts of the program so that these programs can be modernized? And it's those changes which give me hope. And I also hold out a lot of hope that in the next administration, when President-elect Biden and um, Vice President Harris come in, that we see more changes to the safety net which make it stronger. So for example, there's been a lot of push to increase the overall size of the SNAP benefit because it's simply inadequate. So I mentioned it's about $140 per person per month. That's equivalent to about $1.40 per person per meal. Now, imagine living on a dollar forty per meal. It is not sustainable. And so there is a big push now to increase the overall benefit by about $100, a so it's a 15% increase. And so it'll be interesting to see if that type of change happens. And then across the safety net, there's a lot of interest in trying to make these changes, which are not just going to help on a temporary basis, but are going to help over the long term, and by doing so, really try to address these long-standing racial inequities that are so rampant throughout the United States to really help people who need the most. So I'm very hopeful for what's to come. There's a lot of work to be done. And I think where the rubber hits the road or the reality that we have to consider is that we have the policy of work. This is this is true in the United States. This is true in many parts of Europe. We know what possibly can But where it it comes down to is, is there political will to make these changes and to make these changes permanent? And I think that's what remains to be seen now that we have a transition coming in the US in terms of the federal government. My hope is that we see lots of positive changes, which are particularly meant to help lower income working families. And um, we'll just have to wait and see about what happens.
0: We share your hope, Sarah. And uh, thank you so much for this great conversation.